Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. One thing I tell people who are interested in getting into RPGs but haven't played before is that literally the hardest thing about any RPG is scheduling a time when everybody is available to play. Um, I've said this before, I've probably mentioned this meme before, but I'm going to mention it again. Um, A meme, it's composed of photos from Lord of the Rings. You have Gandalf, and he says, his caption reads, Excellent, we play on the 5th. And then a photo of Aragorn, he says, You have my sword. A photo of Legolas, you have my bow. A photo of Gimli, the fifth isn't great for me. I had a, a scheduling problem uh, this weekend. Um, I try to run uh, D&D for the full group, which includes uh, the cousins as well as, as my daughter, um, I try to do that. Well, the the intention is for that to go on the first Saturday of the month. Well, we we barely played at all during the summer holidays. In fact, we barely did any gaming of any kind during the summer holidays, um, which is it's actually pretty typical. The summer holidays are only six weeks long, which sounds like a lot of time, but if you consider that. Everybody in the entire country with kids is going to be taking two of those weeks off to go away, whether it's abroad or just to another part of the UK or something like that, or to visit relatives. And they won't always be the same two weeks. So, you know, at any given time, a certain percentage of your peer group is away on holiday and unreachable. We had, I had my parents visiting from the U.S. Um, so there wasn't a lot of time to arrange stuff, you know, between us being busy and other people being busy. Um, this is, you know, my daughter's fifth year in primary school. Um, I'm used to this being being the case. Um, also, it was a, a a really hot summer here in the U.K. And that meant that Pretty much every day, instead of sitting around inside playing indoor games, which that's what an RPG is, um, we were uh, slathering everybody with uh, sun cream and sending them outside. Got the paddling pool out, splashing around, you know, doing all the outdoor summer things. So, you know, we had no gaming. Um, I got a really bad cold just after my parents... um, uh, left, um, uh, you know, I was feeling a bit run down, so probably my immune system wasn't at its best. So that knocked me out. Then we had a lot of prep for our holiday abroad and things, so we just didn't do a lot of uh, a lot of gaming over the summer. So I really wanted to like say, hey, you know, before we like just forget about this <laughs> and never and never finish this game and never run it again. Let's uh, 
let's see if we can get a session in this weekend. So the way that uh, the full group session works is that we alternate whose house uh, we play at. Um, and my memory was that the last time we played, it was a while ago now, it was before the, before the summer holiday started. My memory was that we played at their house. So I was assuming they would come to our house. Unfortunately, they were also assuming that we would be coming to their house. So at about 3 p.m., I was like, we're, uh, we're ready whenever you want to show up. And it was like, oh, we thought you were coming here. And by that time, like I had, I had all the stuff set up in the living room, you know, the, uh, the battle mat, the minis out, the dice, the character sheets. I had all the books and stuff. I've been prepping the session all day. Because if you remember the last time, this is the this is where we're running Curse of Strahd. If you remember the last time I talked about Curse of Strahd, which was a long time ago, it was one of my earlier episodes. Um, they had they had decided to go into Argenvostholt, um, and I didn't realize they were going to tackle that one right yet. So at that time, I hadn't prepped much, so I did a lot of thorough prepping. I uh, I I looked, you know. I basically made notes on every possible room that they could that they could reasonably enter in one gaming session. Um, you know, and and if this it isn't a dungeon dungeon, it's a it's a, a ruined house. And and there's a there's a difference between uh between those things. Dungeons have fewer options because they are designed to kind of trap you into certain areas or funnel you into certain directions. But this, you know, the, the premise being that this was a house where people lived and it's now ruined and abandoned. It means that, you know, there's lots of doors, lots of stairs. It's meant, every room is meant to be accessible. So there were a lot of potential paths that I had to kind of map out. Well, they could go here to here to here and stuff. Cause I was trying to only, only prep, as many uh, as many rooms as they could need, but depending on where they went first and where they went from there, there were quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of eventualities I needed to prep for. So at three p.m., when I realized that uh, there this this misunderstanding had occurred, I looked over at the table where I had all the stuff set up, and I was like thinking, now I have to pack all that up. And then bundle it all into the car and then unpack it again at the other end. By that time, it's going to be time to come home, you know. So uh, so instead, my, my daughter was really disappointed. Um, she took that really, really hard. But after, after you know, after she got, got it out of her system for a bit, then we just, I made some popcorn. And I brought her some chocolate chip cookies and we watched Lord of the Rings. So... It turned into actually a very pleasant afternoon. But it got me thinking about what what I'm noticing is my increasing lack of enthusiasm for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Because this is a 5th edition game. And as you know from from my previous episodes, I've been running White Box for my kids. And I've started running White Box at my friendly local game store. And the amount of crap that I have to bring with me and set up, you know, it's just, there's such a huge difference 
between wipe what I need to run white box and what I need to run fifth edition D and D. And fifth edition D and D isn't even. I mean, compared to Pathfinder, it is rules light. You know, God help me if I if I ever decided to run first edition Pathfinder, which we'll probably have to start calling it that now because you know, second edition is going to be a thing. So. I I thought that I would talk a little bit about um, rules light because uh, Frank uh, Frank T just did a, an ish an episode on uh, you know where he did call-ins on on when he was talking about what makes things rules light um, and Larry Hamilton just did uh, a really good episode on being a DM. And I thought about phoning into both of those things, but sometimes when my thoughts are too long to fit into one minute, instead of doing a phone in, I just will put them in my in my episode um, and, and address it that way. So first of all, I recommend that you uh, you go and uh, listen to those two episodes if you haven't already. And yeah, so we'll just talk about um, some of my my take on on rules light versus not rules light some of my impressions about or what what my how my feelings about fifth edition are evolving and um yeah some some other random stuff like that but first let's do some call-ins hey robert it's rich from cockatrice nuggets ah the memories those old dice those old bad dice that came in the uh Granted, much later than uh, the original box set, but uh, even in the, the red box set in the 80s, um, there were only five dice, right? There was uh, four, six, eight, 20. That's, uh, that's four dice. Oh, I'm missing one there, 12. Um, yeah, that 10-sider got used, or that 20-sider got used a lot. It was a 10-sider, it was percentage dice, it was a 20-sider. And uh, Lord, do I remember coloring in all my dice. I was really sad that I could only color in half my 20 because it was hard to read with the other half. Um, thanks for bringing that bit up in my memory. And uh, that's the end of my minute. Thanks for that, Rich. Yeah, uh, the dice have been on my mind a lot recently um because uh there's been a there was a trend just a little bit ago on the, like the the BX uh Facebook group of of people posting pictures of their old box sets i, I mean in some cases it's literally their the box set that they've had since it came out since they were kids and first started playing or i'm sure some of them have just paid exorbitant amounts of money to get them off eBay cuz you can you know you can get those off eBay but <laughs> they ain't going to be cheap um, but yeah, and, and there's been also some people who they've got more than one set and they're like, they've got them all out and they're asking, does anybody remember which set goes with which edition? You know, I can't, I know I've got one for Moldvay and they've got like the blue, the Holmes basic box set as well. And then people are like, I definitely remember getting that one. I think those, that the, those ones go with the, the Moldvay basic. Cause I remember, when I when uh when I first got it and stuff, but there's you know there's been all these pictures of those classic dice sets you know, um all over Facebook recently, so they were kind of in my mind. Um, I, I swear to God, you know, I think th- these are things that modern gamers 
they need to they need to look at that and 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 know that you know back in the day those were the tools that you had available you know um it, it wasn't like it is now where you know people have they're like oh i've got my d20 is made out of metal from a meteorite and stuff and my my this is a diamond d20 you know that the, it's ridiculous that the little mini industry that has grown up around RPG dice where you can get all the, there's a, there's a player at my friendly local game store and he's got, they're not actually gold. I'm sure they're just made of brass, but they're metal and they look like gold. So he's always rolling those. They roll terribly and you, and he have to, he has to roll them in a box because they're so heavy that they would knock your mini down and chip it if they actually came into contact um, you know, just that this is the, this is the world we live in now where like people not only have all the RPG dice that they need, but they're, they're fancy. You know, my kids have translucent rainbow D20 sets. Um, they're good dice. They're beautiful. But you know, this is like, can you, can you imagine going back to 1981 with the, with, with the kids who've just got the, the, the red box and those dice and saying to them that someday it will be possible to get dice that look like this it just must have seemed like a dream world or something another thing that i thought of when uh when i think of the the old school dice is in the in like the um the moldvay basic uh rule set there's a little drawing of the dice on the table um it's just uh there's a drawing of a d4 and I can't remember which other dice are in are in the drawing, but there's a drawing of a D six, and it's just it's just a, a six sided die with pips, um, as if to get the D six, he just went to the board game cupboard. Because frankly, that was as easy as getting dice. I mean, yeah, you know, a, a normal six sided die, you might as well just get one from the board game cupboard. Then, uh, then get some bespoke one that has Arabic numerals on it. You know, now, now, who who would show up to the gaming table with a six sided die with pips on it that you that you didn't get specifically for playing RPGs? You know, that would probably be kind of embarrassing or something now. But yeah, back, I don't know the the history the history of RPG dice. You know, people. People should uh, there should be like a museum for that, to 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 look at all the different uh, the different iterations of of dice that come with box sets and and starter sets. And talking of other funny dice, um, when we first when we first got into playing D and D at home, I showed my daughter a picture of the 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 hundred-sided die the the so-called zokihedron because i i remember seeing one when i was in middle school in the the gaming group that wouldn't let me play with them one of them had a hundred-sided die i was always fascinated by their dice because you know not being a gamer at the time the fact that you could get dice that weren't cubes with pips on them that was mind blowing. And here, this guy, it looked like a, like a colorful golf ball. And he rolled it a few times to show, you know, how it worked. And of course that, that was back in the days of advanced dungeons and dragons where percentile dice were used a lot more than they are now. Um, if 
if you were a DM, for instance, there's so many modules that talk about, oh, there's a certain percentage chance that this will happen. You know, um, I remember a lot of Gygaxian modules would definitely use, you know, would, would, would advise the DM that there's a certain percentage that chance that the ogres might have, you know, javelins or something like that. So, you know, you might as well roll percentile dice. You might as well roll a hundred sided die for that. Um, if you had a thief, if you're either running a thief or there was a thief in your group, thief skills were all done as percentage. So, you know, you might as well have a hundred sided die for thief skills. Um, but I showed my daughter a picture of this hundred sided die and she really, really wanted one. And I think, I think they were not, they were not currently being made anymore because I, I, I could only find them for really like for 50, 40, 50 pounds or something like that. And that was before shipping. And I'm like, I'm not spending 50 quid on one die that you don't even use in fifth edition. <laughs> That's the thing is that in the entire fifth edition player's handbook, I think there is one instance where you would roll a hundred sided die and that is for, to get a trinket. You know, while you're doing your character creation, you can roll on this D100 table and get a trinket. Now, I've never used a trinket in as a player. And I always forget to ask people what their trinkets are. Ah, that's not true. In the full group game, we are using the trinkets. Um, one of them did randomly roll up a raven pendant on their trinket table, and I have tied that into the plot of Curse of Strahd. And I have managed to tie the uh, pirate flag that somebody else got um, into their into into their personal backstory and link that to Curse of Strahd. And I have also managed to tie a doorknob <laughs> that somebody else rolled into into their. So actually, I, I I've been pretty good about. It. I think of the four players, I've definitely tied three of their trinkets into the plot. Um, but as a player, no DM has ever said what's your trinket i gotta make sure that has some significance in the game they just forget about it and it's the same thing too personally with like the the other things fifth edition advises you to come up with like your your uh your personality trait and your ideal and your bond and your flaw you know they they don't bother asking about that or trying to work it into the game they just stick to the module as written so uh but yeah, that's the, as far as I as far as I can remember, that is the only D one hundred table in the entire fifth edition player's handbook. It's certainly never used for any kind of mechanic. So I was like, I'm not going to buy this this for you. Um, but recently, I decided to buy the funny Dungeon Crawl Classics dice. Not because I'm actually going to play Dungeon Crawl Classics. So I asked a while ago if anybody could sell me on Dungeon Crawl Classics and. Only uh, only Colin responded, and he said it probably isn't worth it for running for kids, which that was kind of my that was what I was anticipating is that it's probably too complex to run for kids. My kids will grow up someday and be ready to handle more complex systems, so I should you know I'd still like opinions whether it's worth pursuing in the future or something like that. But it sounds like in the in the short term, I'm not going to have any use for it. But I decided to go and buy a set of these Dungeon Crawl Classics dice. 
Um, mainly because I have the D30 sandbox companion and I don't have a D30. So I'm like, I'll get a D30. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, in like Swords and Wizardry Complete, a lot of monsters do like a D3 of damage for at least one of their attacks or even a D2. A D2, you can always just flip a coin, but, um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to get these funny dice. Um, they're kind of cool looking. And while I was looking for them, I noticed that you can now get D100s or Zokihedrons for about 15 pounds. And that's a much more reasonable price. And my daughter's birthday is coming up. So I ordered her a damn purple D100. Uh, so hopefully she still wants one. Um, they are cool looking. And I mean, if you're into games and gaming and stuff, having a D100 that's pretty, I don't know. It's a good thing for your collection in any case, you know. We don't have meteorite dice, but I can get her a D100. Hey, Robert, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Just got done listening to your episode about chainmail, and your discussion of weapon class put me in mind of Metamorphosis Alpha. It was the first science fiction role playing game, 1976, and because. Jim Ward was also the co-author of Gamma World. Those two are very similar. I believe they both have weapon class. And being from the same time period, at least Metamorphosis Alpha, closer to OD&D than what followed, that makes sense where it got weapon class. But I don't recall the specifics. I don't think it does much other than how it affects going against armor class. But I can see that's where they had that. So basically you've got two charts you have to reference uh, or two factors you have to reference in combat in Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World both weapon and armor class in wouldn't you know I'd run out of time uh, so in AD&D the, uh, they didn't have weapon class but they had speed factor and so they kind of had the effects of weapon class because combat talked about longer weapons and reach and then the speed factor and i think people see the speed factor on a dagger being so fast they assume that's better but in ad and d the longer reach is going to be some of the bits from chainmail you discussed is there if you want to use it in ad and d but not exactly um but i know that we tried using speed factor and we soon gave up on it because it just bogged down combat and made it take even longer and combat can be really slow if you're rolling poor hits and so forth so good episode looking forward to more thanks for that larry always great to hear from you uh i never did actually play any of the uh early like sci-fi stuff like metamorphosis alpha or um Gamma World. I'll probably have to check those out. I've got I've got White Star, the uh the James Bond kind of white box sci-fi ones. Um and I've I've often I've often wanted to kind of do a sci-fi campaign. Um I guess I should also look into Traveler as well. Um but I I remember uh I remember Speed Factor from the uh AD&D uh the AD&D books. It's one of these things where I like the idea of it because I like 
I like rules that make combat less straightforward than just roll to hit, roll to hit. They give you more things to think about because my hope is always that it will encourage people to think more tactically and more strategically about combat. But I think in practice, it does, as you say, it just slows, ends up slowing things down. And that's why I was pretty sparing with what I eventually added to to my game from Chainmail, which for for my white box game, what I've basically, what I've really added is actually just the returning attack um, in place of an opportunity attack. So that when you, uh, when you make a melee attack, if your opponent survives, they get to make a free basic melee attack back at you. And that's pretty much the only thing I've, I've, uh, I've ended up or that the only thing I'm currently using, because if you do add too much of this stuff, then combat does take a long time. And I think these things, since they do come from war games where the entire game was the battle, where if you were, you were sitting around the table for four hours, it was because you were fighting one long battle that it, it didn't, it wouldn't matter how long combat took under a war game system because that's what you're there for. But, you know, a role playing game, you want to have a variety of types of encounter. You want to have times where you're, talking to NPCs, you want to have times when you're exploring, you want to have times when you're not in any danger at all, you want a little bit of falling action, you know, you want a little bit of respite (laughs) in between the dangerous bits, so I think, yeah, it's a bet, it's a, it's an interesting idea, the way, and it makes sense, a lot of, lots of the AD&D rules make perfect sense, you know why they're there, like, for instance, not being able to add your shield bonus to AC, if you're being attacked from behind or from your uh, right flank, assuming that you're holding your shield in your left hand and it would be op- opposite if you were left-handed. That makes sense. Yeah, because your shield is on one side of your body. So attacks from a certain direction, your shield's not going to count for them. But in practice, it means that there's another number <laughs> that you have you have to remember the AC for re- for uh, rear attacks and right flank attacks. So it ends up just being more complicated than it really needs to be. And that's a good segue into one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, in this episode. So, so like I said at the beginning, at the uh, over the weekend, I was intending to run uh, Curse of Strahd 5A, 5e for the full group. Um, I was intending to run at the house um, at my at my house, which uh, to a certain extent influenced the amount of gear I was setting up because I didn't have to move any of it. But even just moving the stuff from the bookshelf and things in my study where I keep a lot of my gaming books. And, uh, you know, paraphernalia into the sitting room where we were going to hold the session. I had um, the three core rule books. And, you know, maybe you don't need all three core rule books every single, for every single session. But you do need the player's handbook to refer to ordinary rules. And I'm the only one in this group who has the player's handbook. None of the players 
uh, have their own copy of it. They're not interested in getting it either, by the way. They have asked whether I would be upset if they purchased the Monster Manual. But since I uh, I freely uh, modify Monster Statistics, I don't think that they would... Uh, I don't think that would prevent them being surprised or challenged by monsters if they were able to look up stuff in their spare time. But yeah, they don't have the uh, player's handbook. So you always need that in case you need to look something up. I did need the monster manual because one of the creatures they would be encountering, most likely, would be a, Re a revenant. In fact, three revenants. And because Revenants are in the Monster Manual, the Curse of Strahd hardcover module doesn't give their stats. So I definitely needed that um, in case they in case they did decide to fight the Revenants, and I needed their uh, I needed their stat blocks. It was also possible that they were going to find a potion of invulnerability. Again, it's one of the rooms they could potentially have gone into, and if they did a, a thorough search, they might have uncovered a potion of invulnerability. And again, because that's in the Dungeon Master's Guide, they don't give you the stats for it, for how it works or what it does. So I definitely needed the Dungeon Master's Guide out as well, just in case, you know, I needed to deal with them. What if they decided to drink it right then, and, you know, I needed to kind of know, know what was going to happen. Of course, needed the hardcover module, And my daughter's playing a tabaxi, so I needed Volo's Guide to Monsters, because that has all the information on the tabaxi as a, uh, as a character class, <clears throat> or as a, as a character race. Um, I didn't need Xanathar's Guide to everything, and I do own Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, but I have actually yet to even open it. I pre-ordered it. So it arrived as soon as it was available, and I still have not even opened the book, which um, shows kind of how my enthusiasm for new 5e products is kind of on the wane. I, uh, I, uh, I read, when I got Volo's Guide to Monsters, I read um, all the, uh, the playable races and all the monster stat blocks, but I skipped the, the, the long sections on lore and layers and, and stuff like that. And I thought, well, I'll read those if I ever run a, an adventure that features this type of monster in depth. Um, so I, you know, I, I mainly read that one. Uh, when I got Xanathar's Guide to Everything, I, I've basically only ever skimmed it for information that I might need in the moment. Like, uh, like I'm running a cleric at my friendly local game store as a player. So I looked up all the cleric spells that are in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. But I haven't given it a really thorough read. And yeah, I haven't even opened Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. So, you know, that that uh, that shows how, <clears throat> how little interested I am in new 5e products. Um, at least official ones. For instance, I have uh, I've devoted much more time to reading the 5e Tome of Horrors uh, from Frog God Games. But anyway, so I have those books. I have the three core rule books, Volo's Guide to Monsters and The uh, Curse of Strahd. Those are, those are uh, five pretty hefty hardcover books. Then I've got a big box of miniatures. So basically, I have, um, I have the, uh, 
the the reissued red box so it looks it looks like the mensa red box but it's actually for uh <clears throat> um the fourth edition essentials and i've taken all the stuff out of it and i just have the box and that um underneath the cardboard insert i have all the minis that might come up in barovia so all my vampires and ghouls and zombies and werewolves and you know a swarm of bats and all the you know stuff plus all the uh the minis for the uh the pcs and for recurring npcs and things like that then it's got um their character sheets in it and um some battle maps and things like that i uh the the area they're exploring is really big so I got out the big chess X battle mat and I have these, uh, dry erase dungeon tiles, um, that kind of fit together like a jigsaw puzzle from roll for initiative. I don't think they're in, they're in production anymore. So they're really hard to track down. You can still get them, but for really like for astronomical amounts of money, um, which is too bad because I've got the 10 inch size ones and I would like to get some of the five inch size ones too. So I could tack little small rooms or rooms, you know, <clears throat> on the, like little, little rooms on the other side of a secret door or something like that. That could be a, a surprise if they happen to find a secret door and you would only need a smaller tile for that. But I can't get those <laughs> because I can't afford them. You can still get them off eBay or Amazon, but because they're out of print, they're uh, they're really expensive now. I I think I I must have got this just before they they went out of production. So I had that. I had all the dice, um, and the big poster map of Barovia, and you know all my uh my markers and pencils and you know. So I, I had a big I had a big stack of gear and it was all spread out all over the all over the uh, living room table and everything. And to pack all that up, I'll have it you know I'll have the box I'll have the uh, rolled up chess X mat. Um, I didn't use my dungeon master screen because I haven't been using my dungeon master screen for original Dungeons and Dragons and I'm experimenting with just never using a screen again. Um, and rolling all my dice in the open and just be like, that's what I rolled. Sorry. You know, um, part, partly to kind of cut down on, you know, how much stuff I have to, to traipse around with and, uh, partially for the, you know, the openness and impartiality. And also I just feel like it makes it seem a little bit more gung-ho, like, look at this, I, I'm playing it fast and loose, I'm not even using a screen. Although I do miss some of the um, reminders of mechanics that you get on the backs of screens. That that actually, that is pretty useful. Um, if I were going to pack all this stuff up, you know, I can just about move it in one trip, but I have to kind of walk very slowly because I've got a big stack of books, a big box full of minis and and dice and, um, you know, the big rolled up chess X mat and stuff like that. By contrast, what I take with me to the game store when I run OD&D, all right, so I have, a, I have one of those all rolled up um, 
I don't even know what you would call them really because it's you roll up everything in it. So if you if you've never heard of all rolled up, you should look up all rolled up online. It's basically this pouch that you can take almost all of your gaming stuff in. So it's got uh, the the pocket for your dice looks really small, but it's deceptively big. They, it's they claim they can hold a hundred dice. I don't actually I don't think I own a hundred dice, so I haven't put that to the test. But I do have like six or seven, maybe eight full sets of of uh of dice from D four to to D twenty. So I've got those in there. I've got a uh, little bag of like little green tokens that I use for if if I need like a monster and I don't have a mini for it. I just, you know, say, okay, these are gnolls or something like that. Um, what they look like is they, well, they look like, uh, they look like uh, junior mints for you Americans, um, except that they're, uh, they're kind of green. They're kind of mint green. So they're instead of chocolate colored, but that's the shape they're in. They look like if you ever play magic, the gathering online, whenever you get like a plus one, plus one token on one of your cards, the, the way that the token looks, they look like that. And in fact, that's probably what they're is they probably are plus one plus one tokens for magic the gathering and when we do play magic the gathering i use them for plus one plus one tokens um i've got that i've got an oversized an oversized marble it's a it's about the size of a d100 I use that for inspiration because I always forget who has inspiration and so do the players. So if somebody ever gets inspiration, I give them this big marble and then they have this big marble sitting on the table the rest of the session. And every time they look at it and go, why do I have this marble? They go, oh, that's right. I have inspiration. So they don't forget to use it. So I have that. I have two minis of my own um, because there's two different characters I run when I'm a player at my friendly local game store, and I've got the minis for both of them in there. I've also got um, three erasers or rubbers if you're in the UK. By the way, Americans, rubbers is what we call erasers uh, in the UK. So if you ever come to visit the UK and... uh, Somebody asks if they can borrow their rubber or borrow a rubber. They're not getting some stanky on their hang down. They're just, uh, they just made a mistake while writing something. And to erase text is to rub it out. So anyways, I've got all of that stuff. Um, oh yeah. And some pencil sharpeners. All of that fits in the pouch intended for your dice and it fits in there comfortably it's never it never feels like it's going to burst open then next to that there's a little flat pocket which is big enough to hold like a really small like pocket-sized notebook you know like the kind that might fit in like your coat pocket like your inner coat pocket or something like that so that's where i keep my notes whenever i remember to take notes which isn't often but i do have a little notebook in there for taking notes when I'm at the gaming table. Then next to that are a series of, of little like thin pockets that are designed to hold pencils. Each one of them can hold two pencils. 
So I've got um, five pencils and one pen. And then in the last of those, which is slightly wider, I actually have a collapsible ruler. So if I'm drawing out rooms on a battle mat and I need to uh, keep a straight line, I can use that ruler. And then basically this whole thing rolls up and then you tie it up and you've got all of that in, in a, a really compact space. Um, the other thing I have, again from All Rolled Up, is a collapsible dice tray. I've got the mini one. Because that's collapsible, it you can roll that up inside of your All Rolled Up. So I've got that as well. So I, and then I've got this little bag. They have two. They sell two sides sizes of bag on uh, on the All Rolled Up website. And I've got I've got the smaller one. It's about the size of like like a lady's pocketbook, basically. It's not big. So I can squeeze my all rolled up plus the uh, the hard copy of the white box rules, you know, which is a soft cover digest size. Um, another A5 notebook. Um, I've also got Table Fables 1 and 2, which are series of uh, series of random tables. Um, a soft cover book of graph paper in case I need to draw out some, uh, some, uh, maps of areas. Then I've got, you know, the, uh, I've got the one page adventure that I was running and the map that I, um, of the actual tower that they were exploring. The one page adventure has all the, the information on running the adventure per se. And then I keyed the map area on the map. So there's a lot of white space um, on the printout of the map. So I just wrote in all the white space what was happening in each room and what they would find there. And that's basically, I, I can shove all of that into this tiny bag. And then that bag is all I need. It's, it's literally got everything I need. It's got all my dice, pencils, pens. I could, I could squeeze spare pencils in there. There's a little zip pocket on the uh, other side of it. And I've got... Uh, spare index cards, which can be used for character sheets. I've also got these, um, they're the size of index cards, but they're just white and they use uh, dry erase markers on them. So I have a little set of thin dry erase markers or non-permanent markers. And you can basically write notes. If you need to give information to just one player, you can write a note on that, hand it to them, but they can give it back and you can wipe it clean and write a new note or, you know, save it for the next session. But, you know, they're, they're kind of like permanent cards. So, because you can just keep erasing them. So I've got all of that plus spare pencils, you know, I just have this one thing, this, this one little bag across my chest and that's all I need. Whereas if I were going to like, if I were going to run 5e at this game store, I'd be lugging in massive amounts of stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they, Frank, uh, Frank T just did a, an episode about, well, there's a lot of, a lot of call-ins about rules light. And one of the things about a rules light system is you can travel light. It's, it's not just light in terms of not a lot of mechanics, but there's also not a lot of stuff that you need to bring with you, you know, um, I actually keep this bag stocked with everything I need to run 
to run OD and D or to to run Swords and Wizardry White Box or Swords and Wizardry mm-hmm. Light. And I have considered just like if I'm ever going to go down to the game store impromptu to just bring that with me. And if I see any people around at loose ends, I could I could be like, hey, do you want to play a quick game of uh, old school D&D? And I would have everything in that bag that I need. You know, we could just roll up some characters on the fly and just run, you know, Swords and Wizardry Light. I actually, amongst my papers, I do have a printout of Swords and Wizardry Light anyway. Although, like I said, the uh, the white box rules fit in that bag too. So with uh, with the one-page adventures, just take along one of the one-page adventures, you know. So I just – the reason I'm rambling on about this is that I did start to feel kind of frustrated about how much gear I felt I needed to run 5e. And, I mean, I could dispense with some of that. Um. I guess I could I could just pull out a few of the the things from the the monster manual and the dungeon master's guide that I knew I was going to need and then not feel like I needed to bring the whole the whole books. Um I know I know this is probably why some people do feel it's worthwhile to uh pay for uh D&D Beyond as then you could then you have all that on your phone or tablet. Since I since I own the hardcover books, I'm not paying for them again, so I still I'm still not going to do that. Um, if we did theater of the mind, I wouldn't need to worry about the minis and the battle mats and stuff like that. Although I don't think the kids would be up for going theater of the mind, to be honest. Um, I might I might mention that I run theater of the mind with a different group and see what their reaction is. But I don't even want to suggest that I may switch us to theater of the mind someday in case they have that instant negative reaction, you know, but I I may, I may like at least point out that it's possible and see what they think because that's a big, you know, taking, taking, you know, minis. And I mean, I don't even use dungeon tiles, but if I did imagine, you know, the extra weight that that would, uh, that would add, I don't know. There's, I guess there's a 5e didn't seem bulky when I first got into it. And it's certainly very streamlined compared to Pathfinder, but compared to white box D and D, it is really bulky. There's a lot of stuff. The fact that you, the fact that the game exists over three hardcore books, right off, that's that's a lot of extra bulk. Whereas a complete game in this little, you know, digest size soft cover, you know, which one's going to win out in terms of lightness, like literal lightness? And uh, I remember, like when I first ran Kids on Bikes. And that was my first experience of letting players handle the bulk of the world building and really kind of just relaxing and just reacting to their ideas rather than starting it off with my own ideas, you know. And I realized that running an RPG can always be this easy. It doesn't just have to be this game, you know. There's a similar thing like running running white box D&D and you know having so much just be well there aren't set out mechanics for this so just how do I think 
what do I think is a fair way to adjudicate this action and kind of trusting myself, you know, and pulling the ideas out of my own head rather than stopping the game and flipping through tomes and tomes until I find the right rule. You know, you, you just reach that thing where like it, it could and should always be this easy to run a game. And you know, that, that does depend. Like some people really like building a character. So like I, um, somebody left a comment on a YouTube video about the Pathfinder playtest um, where he referred to character creation in Pathfinder as a mini game, you know, like some people do enjoy the process of character creation in these crunchy rules, heavy systems. I don't, you know, building a character isn't the same as playing the game and I would rather get to playing the game. So I don't want to spend hours and hours and hours crafting my character. I would rather get to the table faster and spend more time at the table playing the game. And similarly, when I'm running a game, I don't want to spend hours and hours flipping through pages to find the right mechanics. I feel like that's halting the game. Some people might enjoy the act, the, the act of interpreting and applying all those rules, but I enjoy having having the the experience at the table progress and i feel like stopping and flipping through pages to find to find rules is like pressing pause and i don't like to press pause too much i'd like to keep the momentum going so i would rather do something on the fly and the thing about white box dnd is that when you do need to resolve an action with the dice chances are you can do it on a d6 and just think about how many chances in six is there of success? And you've got a baseline from the ones that are defined in the rules anyway, like pushing open stuck doors, finding secret doors, listening for noise and stuff. So, you know, you already have a sense of how difficult certain tasks should be. So if they're trying to do something and you feel like a dice roll is necessary, just graft it to one of those dice rolls. And that's all you, that's, that's as much thought as you have to put into it. And, you know, I talked about how in Melee, about how rolling up adversaries, like the the bad guys for them to fight took seconds. It's maybe not quite that quick with White Box, but, you know, Josh Beckelheimer wrote this uh, post on his blog about how quick, um, I think he did a podcast episode about it as well, um, about how quick it is to uh, to make up a White Box or Swords and Wizardry light monster on the fly. And, you know, I'd like to reiterate that as well. Like, if you get caught without a monster and you need to make one up impromptu. All you basically need to know is like, what's the concept of that monster? Then give it an armor class, hit dice. And if it has any special abilities, give a little thought to that. You know, its damage is going to be based on a D6. So you don't have to worry too much about its damage. That's pretty much it. You know, how fast is it going to move? You might want to give some thought to that, but you could do it really. You could do it literally before their eyes. And it would feel like you, it would feel like a designed monster that you brought to the table. They would never even have to know that you were making it up as you went along. So, um, yeah, it's just about, you know, I think for some people, they really, they're really jazzed about all the little bits to the game. And that is a big part of their enjoyment. And some people, and I'm one of these people, they feel like, 
some of those intricate bits actually get in the way of playing the game. And I call that playing the game, but what I'm actually saying is that playing the game for me is being at the table, interacting with the players and seeing what happens and getting on to the next thing that happens. And for some people, playing the game is maybe adjudicating those mechanics or making those decisions in character creation, you know? Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's the same old story. There's no wrong way to play, but the way that I, the way that I like to play is really about making sure that we're all together at the table, having experiences, driving, like driving the story forward, not necessarily the narrative, but, you know, making sure that they're doing something and something is happening, you know, and I want to get to that. I want to get to those moments as fast as possible and not be looking up rules in a book. And so we're, uh, we're coming on to uh, another long episode, so apologies for that. But this does segue into the other thing that I kind of wanted to talk about. Because um, I was listening to Larry Hamilton's um, episode about like about like different DMing types and about learning from other DMs and finding your DM style and things like that. And something he talked about reminded me of like we can, we all have our 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 preferred style of playing and there's also probably there's also probably some secondary styles like there's your favorite style of play and then there's some other styles that you're also you can get it you can get with you know they're uh they may not be your absolute favorite but you know you can dig it and then there's some styles that you just absolutely hate and i was thinking about this a long time ago i was actually intending to write a blog post about it but i never did um you can take your your most hated style and there is a group for that style, there's a group where that's the best, like that's what they want to do. And I started thinking about the two things that I, I dislike the most. And uh, one was the murder hobo type. Like if you have a one murder hobo at your table that just wants to kill every single thing, that can be very disrupting if the rest of the group, including the DM, aren't into it. But it's possible to have an entire gaming group composed of murder hobos, including the DM where all they want to do is kill every single monster they find. And the DM's cool with that and wants to just give them increasingly difficult and interesting things to kill. And they'll be having loads of fun. And if they're all into it and that's what they want to do, then good on them, you know? And then I thought of the, the thing that I hate even more, which is the rules lawyer. Um, I would actually rather have a murder hobo than a rules lawyer at my table. But I was also thinking, well, like, actually, there probably is somewhere out there a group comp composed entirely of rules lawyers, and they're happy. And I started thinking, like, I know a couple of people, some of whom are even in my family, they enjoy arguing, um, not even not even debating they just enjoy arguing. I, I think they don't perceive a conversation as worthwhile unless the two people in the conversation are taking opposing sides. So they're not malicious. 
you know, they're not like playing devil's advocate or trying to, to upset people or get at people. But if you say something to them, they will go ahead and take the opposite view because I, I think they just literally don't think that a conversation is really worthwhile unless there's some kind of back and forth, like a conversation where two people broadly agree. They, I guess, I, I think they don't see the point of that. So they do just enjoy, you know, you say something and they just go ahead and take the counterpoint, not, not to be mean, not to be a a jerk, not because they want to test their debating skills or certainly not because they actually believe what they're saying. It's just, it's just kind of how they are. Now, I'm not that way. So I find that kind of frustrating. Like sometimes if I'm at a party or a barbecue or a family gathering or whatever, I just want to be able to open my mouth without having somebody argue with me, you know? And and if, if it's going to be like that, then I'd rather not open my mouth, but they're not trying to be upsetting, you know, that's just how they converse. And I was thinking a group of players who are kind of like that, you know, they could get together and form a gaming group and, and their session could be like, you know, they could have like a typical four hour session and have three hours be various debates on rules. And then like, if I were at that table, I would be bored and frustrated the entire time. And I would probably never want to go back. But they could go home and, you know, their partners could be like, oh, how was your game? And they'd be like, it was awesome. And, you know, maybe very little gaming stuff happened, but they did talk for a long time about grappling, um, you know, and, and that would be awesome for them because maybe that's where, where their fun lies is in, is in interpreting the minutia of complex rule systems. Like, there is a valid amount of fun to be had in that. And if that is where your fun lies, then you need to find that group and join it. Just like if all you want to do is kick down the door and kill whatever's on the other side of it and take all their stuff, and you, you're not remotely interested in anything else, then go find that group, you know? Um, anyways, that was just a, a, something that I had been meaning to talk about for a long time or, you know, put in my blog post, you know, like when you say like, there's no wrong way to play the game, like that's, you know, that's how far you can even stretch it. You just need to make sure you're playing with people who are also able to have fun in that way. So don't be in that rules lawyer group if you're not into that. And I would never want to be in that group. But if somewhere out there that group exists, then I hope they're having fun and I hope they continue to have fun with each other for years to come. <sighs> Anyways, that's enough BS for me for one day. Um, before I go, just one thing. Do you guys ever like watch a video on YouTube and you want to leave it a thumbs up and you notice that there's like, you know, 62 thumbs ups and one thumbs down. Who Who is that guy who keeps giving these videos a thumbs down? You know, Forget that guy, man. Anyways, um, until next time, play well and let the dice roll where they may.